together. This is our final week of our series we have called Faith and Doubt, where we are looking at the stories of Jesus post-resurrection, pre what's known as ascension, him uh, ascending up into heaven. And so in these stories, we are walking through stories of people's tension with belief and doubt. Do I believe? I still have doubts. I'm struggling in this area, but I, I still think he's working and moving. I'm not sure how this is happening. At the same time, we are speaking and encouraging each of you, if you are going through this process yourself right now of asking difficult questions about your own faith and belief, we're walking through how to ask questions about your faith without losing it. And if you have family members, children or grandchildren who grew up in the church, have lost their faith, we're also just trying to walk a little bit of how to have compassion and guide them in a healthy way to understand faith or the love that God has for them. Today we will be looking at my favorite chapter in all of Scripture, as I said earlier, John chapter 21. And in honor of that, we're going to be reading the entire chapter, John 21. So you'll be reading it together with me. There are Bibles under about half of your chairs. You can grab one of those or open it up on an app or follow along on the screen behind me. I'll be reading in the New Living Translation, the Gospel of John, chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It's the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus asked them, said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He then said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him this third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show him what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper. And he said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to the Lord, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers and the disciple who was, that he was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the record of your life recorded by those who followed you and knew you. And we thank you, Lord, that in this story, you are revealing life redemption, grace, and the loving relationship you have for each of us. Lord, we pray that we may understand it, that it may guide us more into your presence. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There is much to this chapter, and I read all of it. If you could hear my tongue, I read a lot out loud, and I talk a lot. I was getting tired. My tongue was starting to fail me. But in this story, there are a lot of rich images and metaphors, strange thing that he said, John may not die. And then everyone started saying, John's going to live forever. And how does that affect him talking to Peter and saying to Peter, when you are old, it seems like he's saying, you will probably not be in control of your life. You will have a difficult end to your life and a death. And then Peter does what a lot of us would do. He turns around to his other friend. He goes, what about that guy? What's going to happen to him? In the middle of this is the famous passage of Jesus asking Peter three times if he'd love him. A lot has been made, if you've heard this passage taught before, that three different Greek words for love used here. But um, most scholars would also say, John does that a lot throughout the gospel. So don't make too much out of that. But let's major on the major parts of the story of Peter and the disciples kind of giving up, going back to their normal life. Jesus coming and restoring them back, intentionally restoring Peter back In three ways, Peter denied three times. Jesus restores him three times. Peter denied around a coal fire. Jesus restores him around a coal fire. And that the love he's asking Peter for him, as we've seen Jesus say, should be transferred to loving the people Jesus has placed around him. And we'll look at this story as we talk about faith and doubt this morning, not so much 
the loss of faith and the doubt we struggle in based on others, but for Peter's story, the doubt we often have on our own worthiness. I, I've, I've done too much or I've messed up too far. I can't get my head and my heart to worship the way that guy does or she does. And so I'm not worthy of this same relationship. And we'll see what Jesus says to that. Our big idea throughout this series has simply been the journey of walking with Jesus through faith and doubt. Walking alongside of him. We live decades of life, most of us. And in that, we have moments where we feel deeply close and faith makes sense. We have others where we struggle and God may feel very far from us. But walking with Jesus in and through that journey, walking alongside of him as we process our own thoughts, feelings, and emotions. For all four weeks, I threw up this image up here, um, and it's our last week on it. So I want to remind us one more time, this is the cycle of faith and doubt, looking at it as a triangle, three sides of it. For all of us, whatever belief system it is, whether it's religion and trust in Jesus, whether it's our own view of life, world, and culture, this is how we form it. The first step of the triangle is construction. We build our ideas. For most of us, this happens in our formative young life. Our childhood through our teenage years, we build ideas of how the world works from our families, from our communities, from those around us. We then, at our teenage years, our, our 20s, maybe going away to college, we move into deconstruction or, or doubt or questioning. Why do we live it this way? Why do we watch these shows? Why do we view the world this way? Why this idea about money, life, religion? We then ask questions. Deconstruction has been defined so many different ways in the last five years, it barely means anything anymore. But the basic definition of deconstruction is taking large concepts and breaking them into the smaller pieces of what makes these ideas and then asking, do I understand this? Do I not? Is this good? Is this bad? In order to then put those pieces back together. Think about it in the way we learn these terms, building a wall and thinking about it as the individual bricks to build that wall. When we go through deconstruction, you may take a brick out. This one's no good. This one's falling apart. This one's, I thought it was good. It's bad. Taking it out, then moving into the third and final stage. And this has been an encouragement throughout this series don't get stuck in deconstruction. Don't get stuck on sitting on the sidelines, arms crossed, and pointing out every problem of every idea of belief. It can be really enticing and empowering to point out the problems. But turning the corner into reconstruction, building a richer, deeper, more beautiful faith belief after examining it and now walking it out together. All right. Let's look at the text this morning. What's the problem happening in this text? In short, Peter, the rock, gave up. He gave up. He believed he was the guy. He goes back to what he was doing before. We see it in the passage. It says, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, two others, the disciples, they were all together and Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go too. They went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Peter 
was the superstar disciple. He was the guy. Literally, Jesus changes his name and calls him the rock. This is the foundation. Your belief, Peter, is what I'm going to build this on. Peter, even church scholars say there's a tradition that Peter was strong. He was a fisherman, tall, strong, muscular, an obvious presence where he was, confidence in this man. If you looked at all of Jesus' disciples, thousands following him, hundreds with him, 12 disciples, three of the inner core, and then one at the center of it, Peter, that they would point to, that's the guy. We're following Jesus, that's the guy with the future. He loves John, John's really sweet, we we all love John, but Peter's the guy. He's the one that's going to lead us, that's the future. It's Peter who walks on water. We make a lot about the fact that he's sunk. Have you ever taken a step on water? I haven't. He walks out on water, trusts in Jesus. He is there at the transfiguration. He's one of three that get to see Jesus' glory on the mountain. He is the only one to correctly declare who Jesus was. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, absolutely, Peter, you got it. Gold star, well done, buddy. Peter is one of the inner three, of the inner 12, of all of those who have followed Jesus for three years. He was called personally by Jesus. His Bible is full of all of those underlines in different colors and notes on the bottom. His Bible's fallen apart. He's at church up front. He's watched every episode of The Chosen. He's watched all of it. He's doing all of it. Peter's there. He's living it. He is the one to declare, even if everyone else denies you, and leaves you, and runs away, I won't. I'm going to follow you to the very end. And yet, Peter is the one who denies Christ three times. We can think of the epic fall of what that would feel like. You're the guy. You're the Sunday school guy. You're the one in youth group. Like, that one's going to be a pastor. They're going into the mission field. Absolutely. They're close to the pastor. They like are a kid in high school that go and hang out at the church's office and help out with offering envelopes. They do all of the stuff. And yet when the chips are down, very publicly, very embarrassingly, fails in the most vulnerable and telling moment. All the hope placed on this one person falling apart. He denies Jesus three times. In Jesus' most vulnerable moment, the moment he needs his friends most closely, Peter denies him. He would be, in our modern understanding now, a proven hypocrite and coward. He'd be the one we say, that's the problem with the church. That's it right there. That's the guy talking a big game, doing all the things, and publicly hypocrite. Can't do it, failed. Does he, did he ever actually believe? Because... Faith is a lot of things when there's no pressure on us, but faith is proved when the pressure is on, when life is hard, when it's tested. And Peter, when it's tested and when the pressure is on, it fails. We would say things like, did he ever have real belief? Or was he just caught up in the hype? Was he just excited about it? Super embarrassing. That not only does he fail publicly, but he fails in the exact way that he said everyone else will fail and I won't. But even more so for Peter, I think about this journey. 
Jesus' most vulnerable moment, Peter fails. Jesus dies. And so Peter's like, I failed Jesus. He's gone. I can't even apologize or grovel to him. And that's rough. Then three days later, Jesus resurrects and calls out Peter. Go tell Peter I'm alive. And now if you're Peter, it's bad that you failed. It's bad that you failed and he died. Maybe it's worse that he's alive again because now you were wrong about everything. And he's alive and he's clearly God. And you're like, what's he going to do to me now? I failed him very publicly. And now he's resurrected. He's God in the flesh. And what am I going to do? When we talk about faith and doubt, much of the conversation around deconstruction is external. What the church has done, what we've read about, where people have failed. But there is a large component of it that is about us, is about our own struggles and failures. I don't, I don't think I can believe in that same way. I just can't do it. Or I've done too much now. I failed too many times. My girlfriend and I, we were in college, and, and before we got married, we, we, we became sexually intimate. Now, I, I don't know if I can do it. I don't, I don't think this is going to work. We fail and we give up. Peter is a story of not external failures, but his own internal failures, his own doubt not in Jesus, his own doubt not in God, his own doubt not in Scripture, but his doubt in himself. I'm not worthy of this. I can't do this. And so Peter does what many of us do. He goes back to what he was doing before. He goes back to who he was before. I followed Jesus for three years. I was a disciple of this Jesus from Nazareth. I believed he was the Messiah. I was in all this. He changed my name. I was a whole new person under Jesus. But I messed that up. That's over. And I'm going to go be the Peter I was before. I'm just going to go fishing. I'm going to go back to what I was doing before. But we see in the passage, in just this short couple of verses, it's not, it's not working the same way it did before. It doesn't feel like it did before. He's not as good at it as he was before. And for any of us who have gone through those moments of faith, struggle, and doubt, I was a believer. I, yeah, I was really passionate in youth group, but then I went to college and all these other things happened in my life or I grew up, I made some mistakes and we try to go back into this is who I was before. It doesn't fit the same, right? There's all this other stuff going on in us. We, we can't go back to the way it was. I have friends that were never Christians, never have been, just living their life, love them, they're kind people and we can talk about faith and there's no bitterness in them. I have friends that were believers, lost their faith, and those conversations have a totally different tone. They can't, they can't get back to the way it was before. We, like Thomas, can sometimes see beauty in being in community together. And that's a little side part of this. Peter has publicly failed, and I think it's significant that John writes out everybody who's still with Peter, everybody who's still friends with him, still close. Peter's going through his own moment of doubt and failure and deconstruction, and the community of other believers who aren't going through the same thing are still with him. Yeah, you're going to go fishing, Peter? Sure, I'll go fishing with you. We're going back to Galilee? Yeah, I'll go with you. We still love you. You're still a part of this. If there's one big thing in this series we've been doing is that 
If you are going through your own series of doubts and struggles, don't do it alone. Do it with a community of believers around you. Invite others into the process. Do it together. Talk about it together. And if you are a follower of Jesus and that's not your journey, you're not going through that, you have the gift of faith, do not push someone out who's struggling. Embrace them in, love them, continue to walk the journey with them. There appears to be a consistent theme in all of these stories that doubt does not disqualify someone from being in the community of Christ. Amen? We can journey it together. The second thing I think Peter's struggling with in this passage is that he's forgotten the wider story. He's forgotten what this is about. Why, why, this, why Jesus came, what the story is about creation and God's plan for us. In his own failure, he's forgotten the wider story. He fails Jesus quite publicly three times. And that would be a really damning experience if the story was about Peter. It's not. It isn't Peter's story. And the story of the gospel, the story of the good news, is not dependent on Peter's life and actions. It is dependent on Jesus' life and actions. And Peter has lost that narrative in this moment. He's lost that he was a part of Jesus' story, of what Jesus was doing and who Jesus is from Genesis to the end of the story. And he's only seeing Peter's story now. He's lost the wider narrative. And in Peter's story, he's a failure. In Peter's story, he's embarrassed. In Peter's story, he's not worthy to be a part of it anymore. But did Peter's denial stop Jesus from finishing the work of the cross? No. Nope. Thanks, Jake. Did Peter's denial stop Jesus from being able to resurrect? No. No. Does it change Jesus' affection for Peter? What this story tells us is also no, it doesn't. Does it change the work that Jesus wants to do in and through Peter? Also no. But Peter doesn't seem to know that. In this conversation that Jesus has with Peter on the Sea of Galilee is that Jesus is already looking past Peter's failures. He's already past it. He's already over it. He's already looking past it. He's able to show that grace and mercy, but Peter hasn't yet. It's like Peter is still at that altar moment. If you've grown up in the tradition of this church, of where we're from, we're we're Pentecostal Christians, and so we believe in the altar space, that there's something about coming forward, something about taking a step where God meets us in that. Part of the struggle can be we get stuck there, and I maybe have failed this week. I, you know, cheated on a test or uh, a young guy has had sexual sin coming into it. And you come to the altar and we do this thing where we're like, God, I am so, so sorry. Like, I am incredibly sorry. I am more sorry than I was last time I said I was sorry. I am triple sorry this time. And I feel really, really bad about it this time. I don't know how to communicate that to you accurately, but I feel worse than I did last time. And last time I said, I know I said this, but this time it's not going to be that way anymore. I'm not going to fail in that anymore. I'm moving on past this. And I like to think that from the moment we recognized that sin, that Jesus is already like, I forgive you. Yeah, we're good, man. Let's go. 
Come on, let's go. Get back on it. Let's get back at this. I love you. I forgive you. My grace is sufficient for you. Let's go. And we're spending the next 40 minutes at the altar trying to be like, no, but I feel it. He's like, we're good, bro. I did it. And I give you my grace and my mercy. Jesus is already on the other side for Peter. He's saying, I know you feel that way, Peter. And I know what happened, but I love you, man. And we're going to move forward. And I'll show my grace to you. Peter's self-doubt has done something we've talked about throughout this series. It's narrowed his focus to be only about himself. And for Peter, it's about himself and Jesus. And we can do this too. In times of struggle, our faith becomes just about me and Jesus. And we'll use that language. It's just me and Jesus. No, that has never been true, ever. It is never just you and Jesus. It was never just Peter and Jesus. It was Jesus and the 12, and Jesus and the 52, and Jesus and the hundreds, and Jesus and the story in past and future that he is redeeming all of creation. But Peter can only see his own failure. And Jesus is telling him in this moment, it's about more than just you, Peter. For us today, we have many reasons to give up. Peter gives up because of his own failure. We have lots of reasons in modern Christian faith to give up. I'm going to list off five of them, published in an article by Kerry Newhoff, um, about modern people walking away from their faith. And I'll give you a little plug and a little commercial. On Wednesday nights, we do midweek formation nights where we're teaching practical theology, how to walk out faith, whether it's how to read the Bible as a whole narrative or prayer exercises. We will start um, in two weeks, but this Wednesday, I'm going to, as a final part of this series, deep dive into what is deconstruction, how do we understand it, and how do we build healthy habits to walk out of it. I will go in depth on these five here, but this morning we'll just run through them. Many reasons to give up. One, Trust in institutions is declining everywhere. For those that feel like people don't trust church or pastors anymore, and the statistics on trust of pastors are terrible. People do not trust pastors very much at all. I understand that. I know a lot of pastors. But at the same time, we don't trust any higher institutions. We have access to constant Twitter feeds of everybody's failures, of what they say, of all the institutional weaknesses, cracks, and problems. There are four pillars of Western society standard in modern world, government, business, media, and church. And all four of them have very negative views in the modern world. It's not just the church that's struggling, but it's every large institution is struggling. I've read too many news articles. I've read too many tweets. I've been watching the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trials, and even their lives are falling apart. It's all a mess. I've given up. Very easy to do. And then we say, only person I can trust then, me. So that's all I'm going to trust in. Difficult, painful way to live. Second thing, we live in a diverse, accessible, and mobile world. First one is clearly a negative. I am not saying that this is a bad thing. This is a beautiful, wonderful thing. God has made us to be diverse and his plan is for the whole globe. But what this also means is we have traditionally built our faith on what is taught us as a child and then we stay in that community and we stay in that community our whole life. And now 
in our teenage years, we're watching TikToks and Instagrams and Twitter feeds from people all over the world, and we're learning about Buddhism and meditation and how to empty myself. And I'm looking at European atheists and their secular views of the world, and I have access to all of these disparate ideas from all over the world. And I'm walking up and I'm going, oh, that could be. I could take some of that. And that makes a lot of sense. And I'm walking in this. And as a church, we're not doing a good enough job, I think, teaching people why we believe what we believe and how it can stand up even in a global perspective. Third, high-performance Christians are burning out. This might be the most shocking one. That the hardest thing right now is not that it is the Christians barely attending who are just stopping attending, which is also happening, but that it is the most productive people in the church are walking away. And they're the ones who start a blog about how Christian faith is empty and what have you, or Twitter feeds, Instagrams, that do this because, and this is an own internal look, in church we ask so much out of the people who serve and work And if at the end of it, the reason we're asking people working and giving and serving, that it's not Jesus at the center of it, if it becomes keeping the organization of the church moving and keeping our lights on and surviving in a difficult world, that's not enough. And when you give and you give and you give and you look around and you say, all I'm giving to is to keep this machine moving and not to receive and understand and share the beautiful presence of a loving Jesus Christ, at that moment, I'm out. Fourth, the valuing of conformity over unity. It's not just that we stay together, but it's that we all need to be exactly the same, believe exactly the same, vote exactly the same, see the world exactly the same, prefer worship exactly the same. Unity is the call of Christ Jesus, not conformity. I have great friends, beautiful followers of Jesus Christ, whose Sunday morning services look vastly different from ours. And I say to them, God bless you. I love the way that God's working through you. I love that liturgy that you walk through and the beauty of those written out prayers that you're reading. I love those high songs of connecting back, the way you treat with such sacred nature, the act of communion. I love those. It's not the way that it connects with me and to lead the church I'm in, but I love that diversity under Christ Jesus and that the center is Christ Jesus and not our particular expressions of it. And when we tell everybody, it needs to be exactly like this and exactly like that, you can't change, and you don't like the music that loud, well, then you shouldn't be a part of this, or you don't like it, this expression, then you shouldn't be a part of it, but that it is unity, which has diversity in it, but unity of who we're brought together around. And then fifth and final, this one maybe is the hardest hitting and the scariest for me to ever talk about from the stage, the acceptance of political ideology and conspiracy theories in Christian communities. One quote from a young Christian who lost their faith says, people of my generation aren't leaving the church because their devious atheist professors convinced them, but because they saw a church more interested in defending political power than in loving their neighbors. Another quote, while believers can register under a party affiliation and be active in politics and should, They should not identify the Christian church or faith with a political party as the only Christian one. When we feel power leaving our hands, and as a Christian church, I'll say it, it's not surprising, Christians are losing their influence in our country. That's a fact. That's been the case for 50 years. 
When we say, I want to keep that influence and power more than I want to love the vulnerable people around me, we have lost our way. And that is the number one, I'm telling you right now, I'm 36 years old, that is the number one complaint of Generation Z and those coming up is that viewpoint, that I think those who have discipled me and taught me care more about holding their power than they do about loving others. Number one thing I hear. So what do we do? How do we respond to this? Again, I'll go through these in detail and we can discuss them together and I'd love to on Wednesday night at 7 back here. In the process of all of this, again, it is easy to lose focus on the larger story of Jesus. The story is about God's desire to be with his people. And the center of that story is Jesus. When the church, when I When leaders lose our focus on Jesus, our movement is no longer very compelling. When it just becomes about the songs we sing and the things we do actively and not about the personhood of Jesus at the center of it, it's no longer enticing. Joe Terrell, who writes this article for Carrie Newhoff Ministries, says, if the path you're on isn't making you a more generous, compassionate, hopeful, and merciful person, then the destination isn't worth the journey. If the journey isn't taking us towards Jesus, our mission statement, if it is not leading people towards Jesus, his goodness and love and mercy, then it's not a journey people want to be on. And as Jesus tells us in Mark 12, they ask him, what is this all about, Jesus? What's the story? What what is God trying to do? Can you tell us? He says, the story is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Let's see God's response. For Peter... God's grace is that the failure of Peter doesn't affect his value. Peter's failure is not the determinant of his value. It's Christ's love, grace, and mercy that decides Peter's value. As John writes, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said, come and have breakfast. This is before Peter has gotten on his knees and begged forgiveness of Jesus. This is before a public weighty confession of Peter. This is Jesus taking that first step on the Sea of Galilee. He sees in Peter. the the regret and the pain already. Peter dives into the water, puts his shirt back on, dives in, swims to Jesus passionately. And then Jesus simply does what Jesus does. He invites him back into relationship again. He says, sit and eat with me. Talk with me, friend. Be in relationship with me again. What Peter had done, where Peter was mentally, did not change who Jesus was, and what Jesus was doing. He's still invited to the table. And this can be an encouragement to any of us on whatever stage of faith and life we are in. 
is that it's never about us being worthy enough, us having it all figured out, us arranging it perfectly and having all of our ducks in order. It has never been about that. It has been about God's initiative to come and create order through Christ Jesus, love, death, resurrection for us and in us. As the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, but God showed his great love for us in this by sending Christ to die while we were still sinners. I like to imagine in this conversation between Jesus and Peter on the Sea of Galilee, as Jesus is asking him, do you love me? And Peter's saying, yeah, you, you know I love you. He's saying, do you love me? Of course, of course I love you. Do you love me? I like to imagine that Jesus is looking Peter in the eyes in this story. And even as Peter is saying, I love you, it's still coming from Peter's self-doubt and struggle. Like he's trying to prove something, right? No, no, I, I, I do love you. I, I, know, I, I know all I did all that, but I, I do love you and I feel terrible about it. And I like to imagine that Jesus is making eye contact with Peter and he's trying to bring his attention back onto himself. And as Peter's trying to, he's like, no, Peter, eyes on me. Look at me. What I'm asking you is who is this about? Is this about you or is this about me? Do you understand who I am and what I'm doing and what I'm doing for you and through you and what I want to do for all of my image bearers on earth? Peter, this isn't about your struggles. This is about my love and grace and mercy. And we may see a lot of things in life that are corruptible. The church can be corruptible. Pastors can be corruptible. Teaching can be corruptible. Our own lives and our faith is often corruptible. But Jesus is incorruptible. He can't falter. He's not going to falter. He is love itself, embodied, personified, lived out perfectly. Nothing sticks to him. Not failure, not hurt, not temptation, not slander from behind his back, not even death sticks to the incorruptible goodness of Jesus. So much so that in their weakness and in their doubt, going back to what they did three years ago, Jesus, resurrected, humbles himself and comes and sits and makes breakfast for them. He is Savior of all. He will ascend to the right hand of the Father and rule and reign as King Jesus for all eternity. And yet... John ends his story of Jesus coming and sitting with his friends and making breakfast for them and reminding them that his love covers over their sin and failure. At the heart of the Christian faith is the story of God putting on flesh and living among us as Christ Jesus. And showing us how very good he is. And we can question a lot of things about faith. And we can question a lot of things about our own selves. And can and absolutely should. But at the center of it is discovering that God himself wants a relationship with us. 
and that through Christ Jesus, we are made right, we are given value, and we are loved eternally. If you bow your heads with me, With heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to read what Paul encourages the Corinthians. He's talking about his own weakness and struggles and doubts. He says to them, in my weakness and struggle, I begged God that I wouldn't struggle anymore. That I would just be done with it and I could, you know, run ahead. And I said to God, I'd be so much better for you if you could take the struggle away. But he says, but I begged God several times. And his response to me was clear. Each time he said, my grace is all that you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. We don't have to have it all figured out and have our perfect systematic theology We don't have to have the testimony that I've never faltered, I've never failed. The testimony is not about our own perfection. The testimony is God's grace in our weakness. And I want to give you a chance this morning, if you've never had a relationship with Jesus, if you're not confident about even where you are with God in this moment, I want to give you a chance to pray a prayer taking a first step of faith in Jesus, a first step of knowing him. If you are a follower of Jesus, use this as a moment to confirm and recommit to that life following Jesus. If you'll pray this with me. God, I am not perfect. I am weak. I have at times failed or hurt myself or hurt others. I need your grace to cover me. I struggle with my own value. Am I good enough? Am I worthy enough? Where am I going to go when I leave this place? And this morning, I receive the love that you have for me in Christ Jesus. That it is not about my worthiness but it is about your grace, mercy, and love. Jesus, I believe you came and you lived as God and man in one flesh. You lived a perfect life and you died in my place on the cross for my sin and death. I believe that you were buried and on the third day you rose again, conquering death and giving us life eternal and life to the full in this world. And Jesus, you gave your life for me. Today, in this moment, I commit my life to follow you. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. If you can...